Welcome to In the Spotlight. This is a podcast brought to you by the Guild of HR Professionals in association with Lace Partners. and welcome to the Guild of HR Professionals Spotlight series of podcasts. We are recording our latest event and interview with one of the leaders in the HR and people market. If you've been listening to our previous podcasts, you'll know that I'm joined by my co-host, Annette Andrews. Welcome, Annette. Thank you. Hello. And it was your birthday recently. Happy birthday. Yesterday. Thank you very much. I, I went walking in the Cotswolds with some friends for a few days. Very nice. Fantastic. And pouring rain as well. So well yes. done. All five days. Yes. <laughs> Excellent. I think we're all having that with our staycations at the moment. And um, I'm joined with, we're joined today with Suki Sandu, who um, I first met as trustee in the Guild and also um, significantly um, involved in the DNI movement in the UK and globally. Uh, a number of uh, involved significantly also in the Black Lives Matters movement as well. We'll come on and talk a little bit about some of the events and uh, we've got coming up uh, soon, Suki as well, that I'm want to be all sure we want to share, but also um, hold of an OBE as well, uh, which we'll talk about, I'm sure, on this podcast. Fantastic. Gosh, where do I even start? So, I mean, you both know me, I'm Suki Sandy, but for your listeners, I'm the founder and CEO for two organizations called Ordalis and Involve. And Ordalis is an executive search firm that levels the playing field for diverse talent and we're in our 10th year of trading. And diversity for us has always been gender, ethnicity and LGBT+. So the reason I established it over nine and a half years ago is because I got really frustrated. I've been in the world of search actually for now 17 years, over 17 years. Mm -hmm. So I got to a point in my career where I got really frustrated with clients and I mean chairmen and CEOs who would constantly say to me, we want to hire a female CFO, we want to hire a female board member. And I would always be like, well done you, you're definitely going to go to heaven, but you have an entirely white leadership team, you have an entirely white board, what are you doing about race? So that was like one of the motivations for setting up Ordelis is to get companies to realize that diversity is more than gender. Now, gender is very important to us. It has been the last, the entire time in, that, we've, that we've existed and we've appointed lots of women. But we have to get companies to realize that there is more diversity than, than women, ethnicity, LGBT+, social mobility, diversity of thought, etc. And then two years into Ordelis, I set up Involve, which is an inclusion consulting firm, because I also recognized that we were doing all these incredible appointments of diverse talent. So that's one side of the coin. Like, how do those individuals feel when they land in the business? There's no point in, in companies spending quite a lot of money of us to find someone if that person then wants to leave after six months. So that's why Involve was created. So the two are separate, but they work very closely together. And I suppose my my passion for diversity and inclusion generally is because I personally, I tick many different boxes. I'm Indian, I'm Sikh, I'm gay, I'm working class. One of the weirdest things about me that people don't realize is that I was born and bred in a small town called Derby. <laughs> <laughs> and no one ever believed me. Know it well. That. No one ever believes me because they think I'm so posh that I'm born and bred in London. And I'm like, I'm really not that posh. Like, you normally can tell when that I'm not from London. Even the way that I say London is the way that I speak. So when people hear my vowels, when they hear me say up and path and grass and not grass or path, 
that's when they know I'm not that posh. So that's how it kind of gives it away. But um, I'm also married to a German white Catholic guy. And I've just been exposed to so much difference around me. And I've also experienced prejudice myself earlier in my career, where also I was in the closet. I didn't feel like I could be myself. So for me, I know what it feels like to hide your identity. And I don't really want anyone else to have to do that. I want everyone to be able to bring their whole selves to work. And we want to be part of the solution. And that's why Odellis and um, Involve existed. And that's why I got the, the ABE from the Queen, was for services to diversity in business. And one of the proudest days of my entire life. Oh, that's brilliant. And Suki, really, really interesting where you say, you know, organisations are so focused on getting diverse talent through the door. But you're right. That's absolutely right. Just because you've got talent through the door doesn't mean that that's it talent's going to be accepted it's going to be supported it's going to be able to make a difference it can be so tough coming in to an organization where you are different yeah and it's those support mechanisms I think that sometimes are overlooked yeah and I'm sure a lot of your listeners who are all in HR largely I assume I think that the onboarding process is critical whether you're diverse or not yeah Mm -hmm. even more so if you're diverse if you think about it because like you say in that let's say you're hiring the first woman into the leadership team or the first ethnic minority onto the board, how are we ensuring that that person isn't just a box-ticking exercise, but actually someone whose voice is genuinely heard and included? And I think a lot of it starts with the onboarding. And the onboarding should start from the day that they sign the contract, not from the day they actually start the job. And companies are notoriously terrible at onboarding. And I'm Mm -hmm. sure you know that like it's in every industry. They're all just not very good at it. And I think it's something that we need to be better better at and more mindful of, given particularly the diversity issues that we might face, because those first 100 days are the first impressions that that candidate has of the organization. And also just the, the process of like when you get the contracts out to them, the offer letter, all of that needs to be really slick and smooth, because at the moment it, it, it is a war for diverse talent. Mm. So if you're mm-hmm. not if you're not like looking after them at the very early or the very beginning, you're setting that psychological contract with the candidate, which I don't think I think it can only go downhill. It takes a lot to build trust and empathy and inclusion with candidates. Full stop. Long time to build trust and very very short time in which to destroy that trust. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Absolutely. And you mentioned the war for diverse talent there, Suki. I, I wonder. With the COVID challenges we've all seen, one of the things that has come out as a relative positive, I think, from from it, if there can be some positives, has been the opening up of the talent marketplace. People realizing that they don't need to look around a single location anymore for talent because people can work more from home. They can work more digitally. Do you think this is, do you think that's a good thing for that diverse uh, diversity agenda? Yeah, definitely. I mean, the the great it's almost made it it's definitely made it fairer. I would say and. Mm-hmm easier for talent to be considered and actually all talent even if you factor in something like disabled talent with Mm -hmm. physical disabilities where some companies for instance like to say they want to hire talent um, who are physically disabled but when they when they realize the investment needed to actually physically change the environment and the investment needed it sometimes kind of puts them off from doing it so actually I think it makes it a lot fairer generally for everyone for lots of different talent I think the strange thing about COVID is that people don't actually have to leave their homes anymore to find a new job. Mm-hmm. They yeah. literally do it from the comfort of their own home, which is quite a new concept for us all to deal with, quite frankly, because no one's had to deal with that before. 
And what it means is that you, there, there are more opportunities for them to consider and we have to work twice as hard to engage them and keep them engaged and retained in the process. But it's again, it's the onboarding that's really challenging to do remotely because yes. when you've got that social capital, people that you know, you can build those relationships. So when it's new, I don't think any of us have really cracked what a remote and inclusive onboarding process looks like. And I think the the remote working and remote hiring is it definitely speeds up the process because obviously when you're trying, particularly from my perspective, when we do senior hiring, the stakeholders that these candidates are meeting are not traveling the world anymore. They're not, they're not on a plane. They're a lot more mm-hmm. available. So we're finding our processes are actually moving faster. And I yep. think there's, there's something about doing a Zoom or a Microsoft Teams where everyone is the same equal face and equal size on a screen. Mm-hmm. That I think there's some kind of, it's quite egalitarian in the way that process is done. There's no hierarchy. So it's a very different way of assessing a candidate. And does the does this process also mean that candidates that have a different style, like extrovert versus introvert, does that mean the introvert benefits more because they're not doing it in person? They mm-hmm. there's yeah. a screen between them that might give them the confidence to perform better at an interview. So it's um it really is, it's it's really extraordinary times. And I think the the war for diverse talent will be won by those companies that continue to be flexible and continue to be thinking about what's best for the employee when it comes to going to an office or working from home. Because yeah. I get that it's not, remote working isn't great for everyone because they might not be set up at home, but you want to ultimately ask what they want. So companies that are starting to think about that return to work kind of policy, there are definitely candidates, and I'm talking about executive candidates, that won't consider a role if they're not given that same amount of flexibility. flexibility. Yeah, They will just go somewhere else. They'll just say no, they want to go somewhere else. So that's what I find really interesting with the debate about the return to work. I'm like, that's great. You can say you want everyone in the office five days a week. You just won't get the best talent. It's as simple as that. You yeah. really don't. It, it's certainly become part of the norm now, hasn't it, in terms of for a lot of jobs now, and as you say, in particular sort of exec jobs as well, that that flexible working will be a big part of it. One of the I things actually, that... I, sorry. Actually, I was just going to say, Aaron, I just thought because I was browsing Instagram before, before here because I'm mm. on holiday. You know, I'm on social media checking what's going on. And there was something I saw. Um, uh, there's a lady called Aline Santos, who's the chief marketing officer for Unilever, who's mm-hmm. fabulous, like a big gender advocate. And she's she's amazing. And she posted something, an event I think they're doing or a campaign called hashtag flexible first. Okay. And it's basically saying that that's the stance that you should take. Yeah. And it wasn't anything to do with COVID-19 and the pandemic. It was just the right way of doing things Mm -hmm. because this is one thing with the argument about remote working and people constantly talking about the pandemic that should not be the only reason to do flexible working I think think we also need to move away from the pandemic and stop talking about COVID-19 from a working perspective it should just be what is right for the business Mm. and what is going to be most productive and what is going to be most engaging for your workforce and I just loved the hashtag flexible first and I feel like that's something that we should be thinking about as a HR guild it's something that we should be championing across the companies that we work in. Couldn't agree more. I don't think that COVID is just the catalyst for what is the right way of doing things to engage people in the right way. That yeah. human, the humanization, I think that everyone has talked about that comes with this level of openness for leaders. We've talked about it on other podcasts and we're in, in terms of you know how open people have become and transparent and the insight you get into organizations and people and leaders in particular. I think has has made a big difference in all of the attracting talent because I think it's 
removes the false culture that can be sometimes presented when you're doing interviewing and, and has meant that people obviously feel much closer to those who are interviewing them and engaging them. And in some cases, that's good, right? And sometimes that's probably going to be a bad thing too. Yeah, but I also think it's about thinking creatively about how you attract that talent. So for instance, we um, in a virtual world, you have to really try and stand out, particularly when you're trying to attract diverse talent, mm. and particularly at a senior level where, for instance, there is a critical, there's a limit or, or critical mass, for instance, of, I don't know, chief technology officers or CFOs that might be ethnically diverse or even gender. So mm -hmm. how are we getting those that diverse talent to come and work for you? And how can we be more creative of attracting the talent? And a client that we worked with recently, Ofgem, because we recruit across public and private sector, mm -hmm. we recruited their, we're recruiting their director of communications. And their CEO is an incredibly inspiring former private sector um, leader who's in the business. And we did things like he recorded a short film where he had an opportunity to like sell the role and the organization to the wider public. He mm -hmm. then did a virtual open evening where it was basically the headhunter candidates and candidates that might have applied. There were about 80 people on the, the teams, all confidentially on there, so no one could see their names. So I was quite terrified about doing something like that. So I thought, God, the worst thing we need is seeing everyone's names where we've got lots of headhunter candidates that aren't really looking, but their names all pop up, but it was all confidential. And it was brilliant. But there was an opportunity for the candidates to ask lots of questions about the role. Um, some of the people that are in the team got a chance to share what it was like to work at Ofgem, talking about the communications skill set and the culture. I mean, they're the kind of steps that you have to take to try and really think about how you attract more diverse talent. Because like I say, there's going to be lots of opportunities these candidates have to consider. So how do you stand out in this current market? Yeah, great. I think we should also be doing something very like that for um, non-exec roles as well, attracting different talent yeah. across sectors. And again, you know, the onboarding is equally important, I think. Well, Annette, it's interesting to say that because one thing that I find really frustrating about the search industry, and I'm sure you've seen on, on social media since the Black Lives Matter in particular, I've been really vocal mm -hmm. about things that companies need to do and what, what people need to go and learn and get, go and get their own resources. And one thing we did last month is, because in, in executive search, in public sector, usually everything is advertised as well as doing the discrete kind of headhunting, right, of talent. So you can generally know what's being hired. It's very rare that it's not advertised because in the civil service, they kind of have to as part of their open and fair competition. But in the private sector, it's not that way at all at senior level. Like mm -hmm. there are a lot of smoke and mirrors you don't know who's hiring because it's also remember a lot of the time it's highly confidential because someone might be exited. You're doing the market map or the outreach before the role comes up. There'd be lots, there could be lots of factors. So the one thing we did last week for our New York and London office is we kind of posted, we were being more transparent about the kind of things we were hiring in the private sector. We didn't necessarily say who the clients were because some of them were confidential but being able to say we're recruiting a, a group marketing director in financial services, we're recruiting a divisional CEO in financial services, we're recruiting a CFO in insurance, we're recruiting, just being able to highlight all the different areas like a non-executive director role for a FTSE business, a chief diversity officer in media, like just mm -hmm. being able to like list them all out so that people have more transparency about what yeah. it was. And actually, we got some great, we got some great feedback and also got some great names. Because actually, we don't know everyone ourselves. Like, we want people to like share the opportunities so that we're ultimately giving more access without 
trying to betray any confidences of the process that we're running for the client. And yeah. I think that's been one of the biggest issues over the last 10 years is, first of all, gender has been the priority because it's been easier for companies to deal with. Mm-hmm. And race hasn't really had the focus that it needed. And just that openness about opportunity and access, I think, is really important mm-hmm. because I'm sure that we all hear the same. I mean, it was it was there have been some very publicized quotes recently, like the Wells Fargo CEO in the US, don't know if you read about that, but he said, you know, it's just really hard to find black talent. They're just not out there. <laughs> I mean, I'm amazed that he's still in the job, quite frankly, but that's a very common, he was vocalizing something that I know a lot of CEOs think. They just don't say it. Yeah. And what our job is, is to demonstrate, actually, that's not the case. The talent is out there. You have to look harder. And yeah. also you need to give them opportunities and access because ordinarily these candidates haven't had access to the opportunities because it's not been a focus of companies. Yeah. Does, does that make sense? No, Absolutely. Absolutely. It, was, I was, I, it leads on to a question I was going to ask you, Suki, which is because you said right at the start, you know, you've been in this market for 17 years. It, it feels like there has been a level of a step level of change, and whether that was COVID as a catalyst or not, over the last, and then definitely Black Lives Matter as, as, a, as a movement this year has certainly seemed to have raised the, the game and the stakes. It feels like there is more corporate attention being paid to this. I've never seen anything like it, Aaron. I really haven't. And if I'm honest, it kind of gives me hope and definitely motivates me to carry on because it's, it's Mm. really, we do all need to do better and we all need to be better allies for the black community. Anyone who's non-black, when you look at the statistics and you look at the horrifying ways in which the the numbers vary across different walks Mm -hmm. of life. And I think we all need to, to be better allies, but yeah, definitely the enthusiasm and the passion around the, the BLM movement is definitely there. And one of the reasons why we we published an open letter in the Sunday Times at the height of the protests and getting CEOs to sign this letter agreeing to take action on race inclusion and black inclusion mm-hmm. was because we didn't want the protests to subside and then the enthusiasm in this yeah. agenda to fade away. The key yeah. thing of the letter is around annually reporting on what you're actually doing on race. Mm-hmm. And also setting targets at all levels for race and black candidates, racially diverse, including black candidates, to ensure that we're getting more of a pipeline into those opportunities. And to see, I think so far we've got like 44 CEOs that have signed the letter, including the likes of ITV, WPP, Auto Trader, like lots of FTSE companies. We're announcing more signatories later this month because it's Black History Month. And we have some great names of people that are signing. And we still continue to have more CEOs. Um, who are considering it at the moment. I think what we found is that a lot of them, although Black Lives Matter has been that catalyst to do something, a lot of them don't know what to do. And yeah. that's been the issue yeah. in the past is that they haven't known what to do. And if you think about the fact that race is so deeply uncomfortable for people to talk about, mm. that they'd rather just say nothing at all than say the wrong thing. Yes. And they're always and worried it, about their brand, aren't they, as well? Absolutely. And the thing is, and I think it's because that there is like, if you think of the different demographics and prejudice you can have. So let's, let's say, for instance, for the sake of argument for this conversation, racism, sexism, homophobia, right? The worst yeah. insult out of those three for a white leader, particularly a white male leader, is being called racist. They, can, they, they won't like being called sexist or being homophobic, but being called racist probably cuts deepest because it's so <laughs> uncomfortable to talk about. And I think what we're seeing now is that 
there there are a lot of um, a lot of listening circles from CEOs trying to understand the lived experience of someone that's different to them. Mm-hmm. That is definitely getting them to take action. Because if you think about the gender movement, the reason why it's progressed over the last ten years is because the majority who are in positions of power and influence are older straight white guys. Yeah, and they've had daughters who are tapping them on the shoulder telling them about their experiences in the workplace and getting them to do something. So they're building empathy with that community. Mm-hmm. Now, if you think about race, we already know that there isn't that critical mass of representation at board level or C-suite. So they're mm-hmm. not building that empathy in the workplace. And unless, of course, one of their children is, say, married to someone who's ethnically diverse and they have children, that's the only way they're building that empathy is through their personal networks. So if they don't have that either, there isn't that empathy being built. So I think what BLM has done is broken down those walls and building bridges to try and build that empathy across different communities. But it has to be done authentically. And they genuinely, the key thing is they have to take action. Like I get so frustrated with companies saying that they're doing focus groups and listening to what their people are saying. I'm like, that's great. Well done. What are you doing? Mm -hmm. What action are you taking? I think it's amazing you've just done five focus groups. What did you do afterwards? (laughs) I'm all about I'm all about deeds and actions stop talking about it and tell me what you're what you're actually doing like that's all I care about because I've been doing this so long now that I've heard all the excuses over the sun in the last 10 years and running my own business about why people don't want to do diversity inclusion or why they want to focus on one particular community and it's interesting since BLM and obviously I do meetings all day every day where companies that I had a meeting with three years ago talking about racial diversity who at the time didn't want to do anything afterwards who are now coming out the woodwork saying, I know we met a few years ago, we weren't quite ready there, but really keen to know what to do next. And I could be really cynical and be like, no, thanks. I tried three Mm. years ago, I'm not interested now. Whereas actually, we're genuinely there to help them and get them on the right path so that they take all the right steps to really support all their communities. And ultimately, it's the Black Lives Matter is the house that's on fire right now. So it deservedly deserves attention. Yeah. And, and I think to your point, hack action, so I couldn't agree more. We, we, we've talked again, I think, about this on other podcasts. You know, it's, that goes beyond social media posting, which I think yeah. it seemed to yeah. be the phase that people went through when, when BLM was, was at its peak and a couple of months ago, really in the press, people was responding quickly. And I think what we really will tell now is, as you say, that the actual practical actions people take. But, but this, is also why, this is also why I'm a trustee for the Guild of HR Professionals, because HR plays such an important role mm. in any business to try and help it with its culture, values, behaviors, and anything I can do to support that community to be even better and engage their workforce even more and help different communities, then more power to you. But we have to also remember that HR is not immune to this issue of race, yeah, particularly in its own Agreed. discipline. Mm. Like the Because I know we like to think that the issue might be elsewhere with representation, but HR also is incredibly white the higher you climb the career ladder in HR. So HR has to also be thinking about how is it promoting and developing and recruiting the widest pool of talent for its own community and own function. And I think the HR leaders of today need, need to be doing their own kind of assessment of why, uh, why that racially diverse community maybe hasn't risen through the ranks and what kind of data points do they have to be able to provide solutions to the problem. But HR is is really important, but it can't also just sit with HR. This is one thing I get frustrated about the business is they mm-hmm. delegate it to HR expecting it can solve all the problems, but it's the business that have to own it. 
And that constant challenge between the HR and everyone else is something that I think is really tough as a HR leader. I mean, my husband is a HR director for a tech business and I see, he tells me about all the issues he has day in, day out. And I kind of feel really sorry for him because they kind of expect him to solve all their problems. And I'm like, they have to take ownership of it. Yeah. So um, I'm, I'm definitely on HR's side, but HR definitely just plays such a pivotal role in driving it. And a lot of this is around credibility, gravitas, like having practical um, interventions that you can do, but also trying to really part of uh, part of HR's job, I think, is to sell the diversity and inclusion business case and to sell the ideas they're coming up with and making sure that it's evidence based and they have lots of data points about how it could drive the change the organization needs to see rather than it being seen as like a fluffy HR intervention. And I think HR has got a really big responsibility to, I know that culture and values are part of that. And I think values are really important. But for me, values are just words. I think, and also I think it's really hard to change someone's values. Values are kind of ingrained in you from the way that you were raised and the different variables that you might have had when you were, when you were growing up. You can't change, I don't think you can change someone's values, but you can change someone's behaviours. And I feel like HR should be central in that in trying to define the behaviors that we expect in the modern world and in the remote world that we're in right now to ensure that everyone is included and everyone has a fair chance. I really, you really made me think, Suki, you're absolutely spot on. HR have got to take a really good look at themselves. Otherwise, how can we take that leadership role more widely within an organization or externally if we're not looking at ourselves? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think it's 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 really interesting that you make that point about HR's role in not being the excuse, if you like, or just the the, the banner carrier for this. It it, it is, and and you, and you talk about data, Suki, and I'm, you can do a much better job than than I ever would around justifying DNI case, right? If it, if it needs any justification, but the uh, there is a very strong data set that shows that more diverse organ the more diverse an organization is the, the greater it performs and that's yes. something that should be in every leader business leader's mind not you know, and it's not an hr matter it's a business matter yes. but but i think i think hr also just needs to be braver and yeah. more daring mm-hmm. like st- again stop talking about it and just do something try it out try something out see if it works measure it measure it success if not try something else like you have to, you have to try something. You can't keep doing the same thing and expect the same result. You have to do things differently. And actually, sometimes I get really frustrated because sometimes HR is the obstacle. Yes. And I'm not going to say I'm not going to say who, but I've <laughs> met a number of chief people officers who are the problem. Mm-hmm. They are the ones that are stopping you. And it amazes me when they're the chief HR. I'm like, you are the chief. How are you <laughs> stopping <laughs> stopping this when it's literally within your remit to drive an inclusive environment help the business drive an inclusive environment but it literally it it amazes me and I think part and that for me is is an education engagement curve for for some of the HR community as well and I'm not going to say and it's a small minority I don't want to try and generalize the entire HR but because generally most HR people I know are fabulous and they're really well-meaning and they want to do the right thing and I have a lot of time for HR leaders because it's a really tough job so it's just it's just trying trying to make sure that they're they're taking the right steps to genuinely believe in what they're doing but have the bravery and the audacity almost to challenge the ceos and the people that are in charge and their peers to actually take action yeah 
And you're right, that can be really tough. But I think part of HR's role is to have courage to challenge, query, question, and occasionally things on their head because then you look at them differently. Absolutely. Even with COVID there, like even the way, um, like no one thought six months ago that everyone could work remotely. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. No one, no one could have thought that, but companies did it because they had to. So why are we not thinking in the similar kind of strategic mindset that diversity and inclusion has to happen and it has to happen in a week? <laughs> There's good business rationale. Or, to yeah, or, or, to or, yeah, or, or what can you do? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Actually, and that, you, you, you kind of hit the nail on the head. I get really frustrated about the DNI business case because there is, as Aaron said, there is so much research out there. It's a given that it's good yeah. for business. And if you don't get it, then you probably shouldn't be a CEO and you shouldn't be running a business. You should do something else, right? But with I, what one thing that I remind companies of is, as you said, Annette, I remind them it's the right thing to do. Because mm. I feel actually that goes further down the priority list or reasons for doing it when actually I'm trying to bring it back to the top again. Because yeah. the research is a given that it's the, it's it's good for business, it's good for the bottom line, it's good for profitability, creativity, productivity, engagement. But actually, it's also just the right thing to do. Thank if you invest in your people, your people would do everything right by your company to make sure that you're successful. Agreed. Agreed. And it's that discretionary it's that discretionary effort that you want from your employees to take your company from good to great. And you don't get that if you're not in an inclusive environment. Full stop. But I also think so. This is really controversial now. I think people going forward will not want to be part of an organisation unless it is inclusive, and they can see very visible evidence of that inclusive approach. I, I completely agree with you. Yeah, they just they they won't they won't want to be, and we see it with candidates now. Where because obviously when we when we're retained for a search, we create a candidate prospectus, and part of that is effectively an opportunity for the company to really demonstrate why the person should join. There's normally a forward from the hiring manager, be the CEO or the chairman, to really mm-hmm. sell the job. There's more about the culture and values and behaviors of the business. It's not just the job spec. Companies want to know more about what it is they're doing, what they stand for, who the person is, who the, who the CEO is, sorry. And like you say, what are they doing from a diversity and inclusion perspective? Like, what are they genuinely doing? Yeah. Like, not just like the statement that might be in the annual report, like what other day-to-day things that they're doing and if they're not happy with that they just won't go forward yeah mm-hmm. they just, they've got other they've got other opportunities to consider and remember with diverse candidates as well usually they've they've kind of made a conscious decision about where they want to be because they feel included so yeah. it always takes a little bit longer for you to try and they'll appraise an opportunity far more than say a straight white man because a straight white guy generally will you know what it's like the psychology around hiring is they won't even look at the job spec they'll say that they can do everything Whereas the diverse candidate will, if they can't do, if they can't do two out of the 10 things, they won't apply because yeah. they really doubt their ability. So part of our job is also to try and coach and mentor and develop them to build that confidence that they can do it. Great. I'm watching the time, Suki, because you have a very important meeting. To today. <laughs> mm, okay. I, do. I do. Which you may want to share a little bit more about, but yeah, very, it's, we it's, do not want you to be late. Yeah into a FTSE 100 CEO to hopefully convince us to sign the open letter in the Sunday time. So I don't want to be late for that. I think it's probably a so great place for us to wrap up wish then, Suki, and wish you, wish you luck. Good luck with that. And thank you so much for your time today. Enjoy the rest of your holiday, your staycation, and more importantly, next month, enjoy your birthday. Yes. Oh, you're more than welcome. Thank you for having me. And thank yeah, you so great much. To, great to be here. Thanks a lot. Take Cheers. care. Bye. Bye. Bye.